Welcome to Movable Dough. This is Steve Danielson. Each week on Movable Dough, I sit down with a composer to talk about their lives, their musical journeys, and, of course, their music. Come with me as we explore each unique path into composition and what they have to share with the world. For a complete archive of episodes, as well as access to the shorter segments called Movable Snippets, visit my website, sdcompose.com slash movabledough. Hey, this is Steve. Thanks for joining me for this episode of Movable Dough. I'm very excited about today's interview because it's being done live. We are here in the Tumwater Library in Tumwater, Washington. My guest lives close enough to me that we can meet in person instead of over Zoom. My guest today is Dr. Don Zontag. Don is a lecturer in composition at Pacific Lutheran University. She has conducted university, community, and church choirs across the U.S., Germany, and Norway. Her works have been commissioned and performed by the Cleveland Opera Theater, the Almeida Trio, the Orchid Ensemble in Vancouver, Canada, and many others. Don holds a Bachelor of Music in Voice Performance from the University of Texas at El Paso, a Master of Music in Choral Conducting from The Ohio State University, and a Doctor of Musical Arts in Voice Performance and Composition from the University of Minnesota. Don Sontag, welcome to Movable Dough. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it is a pleasure to be here, and especially in person. So I saw online that you were self-taught on piano until the age of 18. So where were you growing up? Like, where, where did all that happen? I grew up in, first in rural southwest Minnesota. Okay. Until I was five, and then we moved to Milwaukee, Wisconsin. My dad grew up in rural southwest Minnesota. Oh. In a little town called Pipestone. I don't know if you... Pipestone, that sounds very familiar. I was, <laughs> I grew up in, or I, I was uh, in Sanborn. Okay. Yeah, so it's west of Mankato. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so if you weren't taking formal piano lessons, how were you learning? Did you have method books? Were you learning by ear? What were you doing? So I can still remember my when I was about three, my parents, who both played... Um, they're not professional musicians, but they both played, and my my uh, both played piano and organ, and they got a used upright grand, and I can still remember crawling up on the bench, and then looking at those keys and seeing the pattern of black and white, and then being just thrilled that I could make up melodies. That was <laughs> very that's very my very first memory of playing the piano. And when I was five, my mother showed me where middle C was on the keyboard, and then she had a she had some method books at home, mm-hmm. and then she showed me the staff and where middle C was, and I think she gave me like two piano lessons, and then I just taught myself from there how how to read music, and so I uh, I took my parents' hymnal, so they had this old 1941 Lutheran hymnal, and by the time I was six, I could play most of those hymns with both hands. Wow. So I, I, I looked for the easiest one I could find to start with, and then I looked for the hardest ones at the end, you know. And, and when I got bored, I would play them backwards. Because <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't hard enough yet. <laughs> Were you involved in music in school as well or just at, at home? Well, interestingly... In the elementary school that I attended was a parochial Lutheran school, Mm -hmm. so K through 8. And we didn't have music class. However, every teacher was expected to be able to play the piano. So in every classroom there was a piano, and we sang at least twice a day. And every, all the way growing up. So it was this really wonderful... um, wonderful thing where music was just considered an integral part of learning, not a separate class. And then also when I was about um, 10, I found in my parents' attic my dad's old cornet. Mm. (laughs) And our school had this band program, and they they offered free lessons. It was um, through the high school, and they, they went out to the grade schools. And uh, I begged, I begged my parents to let me participate in this program. So when I was 10, I started taking trumpet lessons Mm -hmm. and playing in. um, So then I played in wind ensembles all through, you know, for about nine years. Wow. I wonder if there's something about Minnesota, because my dad had a cornet that I started on as well. 
So, I don't know. <laughs> so I want to circle back to something I said in your bio, uh, that you conducted choirs in both Germany and Norway. So how long were you in those countries, and what were you doing there? I spent nine years in Germany, actually. So I wanted to sing opera there. Okay. I wanted to study opera and, and sing opera. That was a really great place to start an opera career, and um, they have state-supported arts, so a lot of Americans go there and just stay there for their entire careers. Mm -hmm. And um, my my ex-husband at the time was in the military and so was able to request a place in Germany. And so I went there, but at the time I was having really serious vocal issues, and so I ended up... Uh, concentrating on on piano again and I um, ended up finding a teacher who actually then helped me rehabilitate my voice I had hypofunctional dysphonia so my vocal folds were not um, there was had been some overuse and then weakness uh -huh. and it's a really tricky thing to to get your voice back in order right. after you've done that so um, this this uh, this voice teacher, he was a professor at the at the Hochschule für Kirchenmusik in Heidelberg, which is Hochschule sounds like high school, but it really means it's a conservatory. Mm -hmm. So um, he taught there, and I started studying with him, and I ended up studying um, both piano and voice there, and I also studied choral conducting, and then he invited me to be assistant conductor of his, um, uh, he had a chamber choir, a German German chamber choir, and so I, I uh, was assistant conductor for that, and then I was also conducting the American International Choir and a military chapel choir, and, uh, Were you doing these all simultaneously? All or? simultaneously, wow. yeah, uh -huh. yeah. So, um, and that's what led me when I when I did move back to the states. I decided to actually study. I had, you know, I had studied choral conducting with these different teachers, and I decided to get a master's mm -hmm. in choral conducting. And then, um, while I was doing my doctorate. I became music director at Mindekirchen in in uh, in Minneapolis, okay. which is means um, uh, Norwegian Memorial Lutheran Church, and it it's this beautiful old building in in the old near downtown Minneapolis, and it was started as an immigrant church for Norwegian immigrants, and they have all of their services. In Norwegian, everything's oh, wow. in Norwegian, and Norwegian learning Norwegian was not difficult for me because I had I had become fluent in German at, in Germany, and so um, all of the choral anthems were in Norwegian or sometimes in Danish or even Icelandic, oh. <laughs> and it was a lot of fun. It was a wonderful choir, and uh, so I did that while I was um, doing my doctorate, and I was able to then get a fellowship to study advanced Norwegian in Oslo okay. for a summer. Um, so that was my, that's my connection to Norway. Very nice. Yeah. So a lot of your earlier career was as a vocal performer, including winning the Inge Pittler Prize for lead performance at Hochschule für Musik. That's right. <laughs> uh, so are you still performing as a soloist in the area? Um, I am not, I haven't done much solo singing lately. I, um, I have done a lot more of, well, mostly I've just been concentrating on composing. Mm -hmm. So my last recital I did was, um, was back in Cleveland a okay. few years ago. So, um, I still do love to sing, but I've also been really um, concentrating on piano again. Okay. Yeah. So when did you decide to add composition into sort of your list of abilities? So already in high school, I thought, I am a composer. I want to be a composer. And then when I started my undergrad, I realized that in order to study composition, I had to study, eight, I had to compose atonal music. Mm-hmm. And I rebelled. I, 
I said, I'm not going to do that. So then I, I composed a lot of things. I was working as a ballet pianist. I put myself through my undergrad degree that way. And I, um, I composed a lot of things for class and they even things that they had little, um, presentations that were televised and I would just throw everything away because I, I was sort of told that if, if your music's not atonal, you're not a serious composer. So, but this drive to compose and this interest in composing that was always very strong and it was always, um, something I knew I was going to do seriously, but I also had children very young. So the time, it was hard to find time to do it. And it was hard to find a teacher who wasn't going to push me to compose atonal music. So um, while I was studying choral conducting at Ohio State, I showed some of my, um, I composed a couple of choral pieces. I just decided it's time to start composing. And then Hilary Affelstadt, who I was studying with, she put them on, on she programmed them actually, and that was really the, the start where I really took off. So I decided when I did my doctorate that I wanted to study composition. But how do I do that? Because I don't have an undergrad or a master's degree in composition. Right. So I looked for schools that offered composition as a secondary area. And I decided to go to the University of Minnesota. They had such a strong uh, composition program there. And, um, and the great thing was Alex Lubit, my, uh, my professor and mentor never, ever pressured me to compose atonal music. Mm. So that was a really wonderful program for me. I was able to, I, I went in as a, technically as a voice performance major and then was studying composition as a secondary area. But by my second lesson, Alex said to me, do you want to do the PhD in composition? <laughs> and at the time, I sort of regret that I didn't do that. It would just have taken an extra year, but I was so tired of being in school. And But I ended up taking much more, many more composition courses. Mm -hmm. than, and, and it became really an equal part of my doctoral uh -huh. degree. I performed my own works on, on all of my recitals we had to do. I had to do three, four, uh, four recitals. I, I also studied choral conducting there. And, um, so that was, it was a wonderful experience. And the, the thing that I learned is that all of that performing experience I had had as, um, a choral conductor, as a singer, as a pianist, and then my former uh, trumpet playing, um, that was training for composing. Sure. So um, it just felt like I, you know, if you're a, you see a toddler and if, a, if a, uh, a baby who's 10 months old stands up and tries to walk, they're stumbling a lot. But if they're 18 months old when they start walking, they just like take off running. Right. That was sort of how I felt like I had never... Um, you know, formally studied composition, and then I, it was just like I had been doing it for years, e even though I was just starting. Uh -huh. So there, of course, there are a lot of nuts and bolts things I will never be done learning enough about how uh, about composing. Um, but uh, but really, studying performance and performing yourself is really wonderful training for being a composer. So I'm interested, was your dissertation more voice-based or composition-based? I, uh, it was composition because I, okay. I composed a chamber, uh, a chamber music, a, a vocal chamber work, um, seven movements, uh, a sonnet cycle, a crown cycle by John Donne. Mm -hmm. And it was, and I performed it myself too. So it was, it was on my last, my final vocal okay. recital. I, I uh, performed it, and then I had to write, or I, I composed it, performed it, and had to write my own analysis of my own work. <laughs> so that was my doctoral That's thesis. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs>
So speaking of which, you've written several operas as well for several opera co companies. Uh, we'll have a chance to talk about one in particular in the second half of the program. So how do you approach writing an opera differently or perhaps similarly to other types of works? Well, um, it is it is different because I'm first thinking about the story. Right. The story is really in the foreground and the music is going to carry the story. So I, I first have this story in mind before I'm even starting the music. Mm -hmm. And, um, and then my process, which I know that there are some other opera composers who do this, but it's, it's difficult to explain to somebody who is a librettist how, how this would work, but I don't write out the libretto and then set it to music. I conceive exactly what's happening in the scene, and then I start improvising with the music, and then the text just starts flowing with the music. Uh -huh. So I never have to, um, when, I'm, when I'm writing my own libretto, I never have to um, worry about trying to make the text work with the music because the music is the ideas of the text are there, but the music is, it's working integrally with, yeah. with the flow, um, the text and the music together. And, um, and that, that process works really well. I started at first, I tried to write out a libretto and it just was very stilted and writing a libretto, um, that is, uh, um, that's a very specific kind of craft. Right. You have to understand that it, it's, you cannot be too attached to every single word. It's not, <laughs> it's not really poetry or, you know, yeah. because it's more, you want to get across the ideas and let the music carry the ideas. Yeah. Cool. So if you could compose for any voicing or any instrumentation, what would be your choice? Like if someone came today and said, we want something, but we don't know what it is, what would you offer them? What would be your, oh, wow. your option? That, that's like, you know, walking into a candy store. <laughs> <laughs> you can have whatever you want. <laughs> um, I love writing for strings. I, I actually, I have, for a long time, I have wanted to write a major orchestral piece. Mm. So I've done some smaller, short orchestral pieces, but um, so I can't tell you, you know, really specific instrumentation. Um, I, but I can think of certain orchestral composers whose timbres I love, you know, yeah. I, Respighi is really wonderful. Edvard Grieg. Grieg is just, it's spectacular how he is able to show um, sort of the, a place. The, like, the, if you've been in Norway and you've ever seen the, the geography, it's, and you're, like, if you're taking a train across and mm -hmm. you see the mountains and so on, and you see the little villages, and then you hear Grieg's music, and you think, oh, I, now I understand Grieg's uh -huh. music, you know? So so I, that's the thing. I think I am very inspired to compose music from what I see, and so I don't think necessarily, oh, I want to write for that instrument. It's more like I'll see something, and then I hear it. I hear what I see in a certain timbre yeah. and instrumentation. So maybe I would like to write about forests or something, you know, and then that <laughs> yeah, yeah, would yeah. determine the instrumentation. Yeah, good answer. <laughs> okay, so I've got a non-music question for you. What is the most recent book you have read, or do you have any recommendations for our listeners? Yeah, the, the most recent book I've read is something very different from what I usually read. Okay. I, like, I like to read, you know, I like to read German literature and... As we all do. As we yeah, all do, right? <laughs> <laughs> but this is by Paul Cienfuegos, and it's How Dare We, 
courageous practices to reclaim our power as citizens. And it's that just sounds like a heavy title. It is, but it's a very easy. It's very easy to read. He is um, really speaking to just the average citizen, not to professional activists, mm-hmm. but to anyone who um, is not happy with what's going on in in their own community or you know beyond, and about. Um, he just it has a wonderful history of the constitution in it and oh, cool. um how our um the legislature and and the 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 power and this whole issue of what is a citizen and that corporations are citizens when that actually started which is not just 10 years ago it's it's more like this has been part of our um, history since the late 1800s. So he he really has very practical advice for how to for how we as citizens can take back our our power because it is a democracy. And yeah. so what what can we actually do? And what are the rights that we still have that we don't know that we have? And then how do we reclaim rights that we have lost? Awesome. Give us that title one more time. It's it is, uh, how dare we, courageous practices to reclaim our power as citizens. Fantastic. Well, I think I will go check that out. All right, before we take a quick break, I'm going to ask you, Don, to play a quick game that this week we're calling One Minus One is None. I'm going to ask you a series of five true or false statements about Hildegard von Bingen, 12th century composer and Benedictine nun. So you're a winner just for playing the game, so just do your best. Okay. All right, true or false? Hildegard spent her life in a convent. In fact, she was given to the church when she was only eight years old. True. That is true, though she didn't take her vows till she was 15. Number two, true or false, Pope Eugenius III forbade Hildegard from preaching in public. True. It's actually false because he was embroiled in battles with uh, Cathard Hirsis. He needed and asked for Hildegard's help in preaching. Uh Yeah. Uh, True or false, she was the dear Abbey of her day. True. That is true. So bishops, nobles, monks, and mayors would write to her for advice. Uh, She wrote to one monk, Just as a mirror which reflects all things is set in its own container, so too the rational soul is placed in the fragile container of the body. In this way, the body is governed in its earthly life by the soul, and the soul contemplates heavenly things through faith. If there were newspapers of the day, that would have been perfect. (laughs) (laughs) All right, number four. Hildegard claimed to have visions of God her whole life, beginning as early as age six. True. Half true. Oh. Uh, she actually claimed visions as early as age three. Oh. Uh, and they never stopped through her whole life. Although it wasn't until she was 43 that God told her to write down what she heard and, and saw to make her visions public. Uh, and true or false, Hildegard was a feminist. True. True-ish, I'll, I'll call that. Uh, so she once wrote, "Women, uh, woman may be made from man, but no man can be made without a woman. So whether or not that's a feminist idea or not, I don't know. But there are some people that will, will claim that Hildegard was. All right. So after a quick break, we're going to come back and we're going to l- listen to some of Dawn's compositions. Welcome back. This is Steve Danielson, and I'm talking today with Don Sontag. So first, we're going to talk about Snowflakes for SATB Choir and Piano. Uh, the piece has text from Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, and you've created a beautiful, almost haunting piece. So tell us about writing this piece and what you were trying to capture in this music. Well, uh, I was writing this piece for the Contarai Chamber Choir in Spokane. I was teaching it at Gonzaga University that year, but I was I was I was on sabbatical, so I was actually still living in um, Hiram, Ohio, which is in the snow belt. And I, um, we were supposed to compose something that was related to snow or a holiday theme. Mm. And uh, so I was looking for poetry and came across this poem by Longfellow. And a friend of mine had just experienced two deaths, Mm. unexpected deaths, um, you know, very close together and very young people who had died. And 
I read this poem, and it so poignantly captures grief. And I also um, could just picture the this kind of whiteout snow because we lived in the snow belt. So, you know, here um, in Olympia, you you know, you might go out to the mountains, but usually you're going to avoid going there when there's whiteout snow, (laughs) right? But I used to go for long walks outside when it was, you know, really heavy snow or just sit in my um, living room and I could look out and it's, and my, my living room looked out towards these kind of dark woods and, and Longfellow was from Maine and Hiram is very New Englandy. So I know like that the, the visual, I had said before, I'm a really visual, um, you know, I, when I'm composing, I'm really seeing um, scenes, and um, and so the yeah, the sounds of this um, I can't ever really explain. You know how how my musical ideas come; they just are very um, intuitive, and um, you know, I'll just kind of feel like I'm in the scene and then that music comes out. Um, but then I also read about Longfellow's history and, mm-hmm. you know, he had, he was, he lost two wives. And then the second time was a really tragic, um, his wife's dress caught on fire. Yeah. And I've always found that he's a really empathetic poet, that he really, really connects with human experience um, I also had had used his poem uh, Evangeline for another long vocal work that I that I wrote, and where he describes the um, the uh, Acadians uh, being um, attacked by the British in Nova Scotia, and then mm. they're they're it was really genocide, and then they they took them all out and spread them all over the continental United States. So anyway, um, so that's. That's how that piece came to be, and um, when I when I hear it now, I can still see like certain uh, certain places in Hiram, like along the cemetery, mm. for example. There's a it's um, it's very rural there, and there are big trees, and um, I'd walk out there when it was snowing. So, all right. Well, yeah. as we listen, listeners, see if you can. See the Snow in Your Mind, because it's a beautiful piece. And we're going to listen here to the Contrai Chamber Choir with Tim Westerhouse, conductor.
right, our second piece today is Braided River. And this is the first movement from Postcards from Denali uh, for String Quartet. So I love the concept of these pieces, sort of musical postcards uh, sent from the views and wonders of Denali. Uh, so were these inspired by an actual trip you took? Yes, I I was uh, with nine other composers in Denali National Park in Alaska as part of the Composing in the Wilderness program that's led by Steve Lias, who is a professor of composition at Stephen F. Austin University in Texas. And uh, so nine composers go hiking for four days in Denali National Park, and then we fly to... uh, to eastern Alaska in a bush plane, and um, and we spend four days there. And really, really, we only had you know maybe three days of composing time, and we compose works that are inspired by our experiences mm. hiking. So I went, I I did this program three times, and this was the first time that I did it. Um, so I was sitting. We had h- done a very strenuous hike that day, and we hiked up the top to the top of this mountain. I think we were at about 5,000 feet of elevation at the end. And I think we started at 2000. So we went up like straight up 3000 uh-huh. feet. And then we sat in the tundra and, and then the view was just amazing. And you could see these tiny rivers starting at, in the distant peaks and you know, they're starting from glaciers. Right. And then they, um, you know, they trickle down and then at the bottom, they, um, they start to do this braiding. And that's because the rocks, um, that they collect as they're going down, they collect rocks as they're going down and then they deposit them and then the water has to move. So the, the pattern actually will change, you know, every couple of days. Right. Um, but what really I found when you're sitting there in the midst of this amazing wilderness in Alaska, you feel very small and you start to really reflect on your whole life. And this, these braided rivers, I knew they start in the mountains and then they, they weave around and they end up going to the Bering Strait and out, you know, to the ocean. And so rivers have always been to me a really great metaphor for life and, how, you know, things start small and they weave around and then it's always leading on to something bigger, I guess. All right. So. Okay, well, we're going to listen to Braided River from Postcards from Denali, uh, performed here by, and I'll hopefully get these names right, Lucia Zalesekova, uh, Margaret Bichteler, Shelley Mathewson, and Catherine Schultz.
All right. Next, we're going to turn to an excerpt from one of your operas, Verlorene Heimat. Did I get pretty close there? Yes, yes. Uh, it translates to Lost Homeland. So the, this opera follows an ethnic German East Prussian family during the last months of World War II. Uh, the selection you sent to me that we're going to hear is a duet between the husband and wife of this family. Uh, so tell us more about this opera in general and then about this selection in particular. Yes, I um, I was looking for a libretto to compose my first opera. Couldn't couldn't find anything that really connected. And I thought, I think I'm going to have to write my own libretto. And I thought, now what am I going to write about? And in 2009, I visited my in-laws in northern Germany. And my mother-in-law, I knew that she had grown up in East Prussia. And I asked her, well, why did you leave? And she told me the whole story, how um, in 19, in 1945, all of the, um, basically all Eastern Europeans were forced to flee uh, west because the Russians were invading. But uh, her, her father had been mayor of the village that they lived in and had been sent to Ukraine to survey land there and realized that the, um, the Nazis had just taken that land from whoever was, you know, yeah. the farmers had just disappeared. And at that point, um, you know, by the, by the middle of the 1940 or the, you know, 1942-43, basically everyone, if you were... Um, German, you had to be a member of the Nazi party. So, and he was mayor. So, but he came back and he and his wife immediately became resistors quietly, right? So um, they just uh, wouldn't let their children be around the other villagers because they didn't want them influenced by this Nazi propaganda. And uh, he refused to wear his uniform to a local Nazi rally and uh, was caught, or and I think he wanted to be seen, but he was sent to the Russian front as a death sentence. Uh -huh. And then his, his wife, Elisa, um, she uh, narrowly escaped being put in a prison, in a labor camp, but uh, escaped that and then had to... Um, stay on the farm with her children alone. And the Nazis sent them a forced laborer from Ukraine to help with the farm because her husband was a mayor, so he was a high status, so they got a forced laborer. And they sent them a 16-year-old girl who um, was from a wealthy family, had never even done housework. And actually, those forced laborers were usually forced to sleep in the barn, stay away from the children. But uh, Eliza had her um, live in the house, take care of the children, and Eliza did the, the heavy work. And then that girl um, evacuated with them. In 1945, uh, the Russians invaded, and people had 24 hours or less to prepare to take a 1,000-kilometer trek across all the way across to Western uh, Germany in freezing, like very uh, frigid, snowy weather. So 300,000 civilians in East Prussia alone died during that wow. trek. And in the end, um, the, the father miraculously relocated his, his, his family, but Hedvig, the, the Ukrainian girl, who also had then revealed to Elisa that she was half Jewish. And Elisa just did not reveal that to anyone. Um, but, but my mother-in-law, Krista, she, um, you know, Hedvig became sort of like a, a sister, an older sister to her. And she lived with this survival guilt for the rest of her life mm -hmm. that a lot of Germans, you know, lived with. Um, but they, they were saved. Hedvig disappeared. And so I, I wrote this opera on this story. Uh-huh. Yeah. So that so it, it, it is be. based on this true story. Yes. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's awesome. Mm -hmm. So what is this duet that we're going to hear? Uh, this duet is between um, Elisa and August, her husband, who... Um, August is actually, he's already been deployed to the front, but he 
was given three days furlough in December of 44, and he came home, and then he warned Eliza that the Russians had already actually crossed the border and were coming soon, and that um, she needed to prepare secretly to evacuate. If, if they caught um, anyone packing even, they would send them to prison because mm. they, they could not let the, Ger- the Germans did, or the Nazis did not want um, to appear as if they were losing. So um, this is the point at which uh, August comes home and, and tells Louisa that, that they're going to have to flee. They don't know where she's going to go or how they're going to find each other again. Okay. All right. Well, we're going to listen to this excerpt from Verlorene Heimat, uh, performed here uh, by the Cleveland Opera Theater. Okay, our last piece today is from the Deus Ex Meus project, uh, viola solo, I Will Lift My Eyes to the Hills. So what is the Deus Ex Meus project? It is a, a project 
to use new music to reflect upon the Psalms. Okay. And uh, there was a, prior to the viola project, there was a, a violin project. And uh, Delvin Case contacted me and asked me if I would compose a piece for the viola project. And I was really honored to be invited to do that. And, and so um, each, uh, he paired composers with a performer. And then together, uh, we uh, chose a psalm together. So two composers always set the same psalm. And you'd hear then two very different interpretations. Right. And this whole program is actually meant to then be, um, they videotaped it. And then it's meant to be shown in churches or any place uh, where people can listen to these these performances and then reflect on on uh, the interpretations of the psalms that these performances suggest. And it's, so it's really to initiate a discussion of the psalms. Sure. Would there be a, a reading of the psalm first and then have the song yes. afterwards sort of yeah. thing? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yes. Um, so... Sort of an interesting question here. Do you find it more of a challenge to write for several instruments at once or just to write for one as a solo instrument? Oh, for, definitely writing for one is more challenging. <laughs> it, is, it is challenging um, because I, I do think in, in harmony. And so you're thinking, how, um, how do I give this piece a shape? and form when there's only one, you know, melodic line right. going on. And so um, it's definitely challenging. Yeah. yeah. I'm always amazed by all the Bach um, solo <laughs> string works. Right. Because so, how do you keep that harmonic interest and the flow of everything when you only have the one, yeah. the one line? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, we're going to listen to... Don's interpretation of I Will Lift My Eyes to the Hills from the Deus Ex Maos Project, uh, performed by violist Daniel Orson.
All right. Well, Dawn, what are you working on now that you can tell us about? Actually, right now I am furiously editing my music because I'm trying to get a new website up uh-huh. and I've, it's been postponed month after month <laughs> and I finally got to get this work done. And so I want to be able to put up my, put up some of my pieces to make them available. And then, uh, but you know, you always find a little typo that you've got a, or formatting issue and there's a lot of technical stuff to take yeah. care of. So I'm working on that. I'm finishing another opera for which I did not write the libretto. It's on Clara Haber, who's the, the, who was the wife of Franz Haber, who invented nerve gas. That was, and actually he's more famous for the, the, the chemicals that he um, put together or whatever for this nerve gas are also, uh, I, don't, I don't know if it's the same chemicals. I, I know that he is very um, important for pesticides hmm. on crops. So in agriculture, his name is known, but he, he was actually Jewish. They were both Jewish, and, and so it seems sort of ironic that he developed the gas that was used later in World War II. So he was, he was World War I era, okay. but his, his chemicals were used as, um, for chemical warfare or for, for gassing opponents in World War I. So Clara was a chemist herself, but after she married her whole career was um, sort of shut down. And uh, she was quite upset about what what Franz was doing, and she ended up committing suicide. And so it's a really sad story. But David Adams is a poet in the Cleveland area who wrote the libretto for that one. And then I've just got a whole range of um, chamber pieces I would like to compose. I have been long wanting to write a sonata for trumpet since I used to be a trumpet player and um, more string quartet music. Mm-hmm. So I just have more ideas probably than I'll ever finish, but uh, <laughs> there's always work to do. Well, if my listeners want to learn more about you and your music, what's your, what is your website and your social media handles? Uh, my website is just www.donsontag.com. Okay. And uh, my Facebook page is Don Sontag. Uh, composer. Okay. And uh, yeah. Fantastic. Well, hey, listeners out there, if you would like to participate in these discussions with our composers, join the Movable Dough Listeners Facebook group. Uh, Ask questions, share stories, post a video of your favorite music, or maybe just a fun music meme. Whatever your druthers, I'd love for you to get involved in Movable Dough. Join the Movable Dough listeners on Facebook today. Well, Don, it has been a lot of fun, especially doing this live. Thank you for joining me today on Movable Dough. Thank you so much for having me. My guest today was composer Dr. Don Sontag. If you have a recommendation for a future guest or an idea for the show, please email me at movabledoe at gmail.com. This is Steve Danielson. Keep the music moving. Mm